This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. It is very interesting to see the president and CEO of Planned Parenthood, Alexis McGill-Johnson, trying to say in this New York Times op-ed that they're going to stop making excuses for Margaret Sanger. Now, how many years have we been talking in the pro-life community about this racist and eugenicist founder of Planned Parenthood who they need to distance themselves from? But more than that, the whole point of distancing yourself from Margaret Sanger is to acknowledge that her entire framework and the entire way that she thinks about human life and especially human life in minority communities is evil and wrong and so is abortion and especially this is the case when you look at the abortion rates in the black community so it's a very interesting development in Planned Parenthood and its PR spin and it's very interesting to see how pro-lifers are not really going along with this spin and rightly so. We're going to talk about it today with Mark Crutcher who is with Life Dynamics And of course, they have put out some great information over the years, including a wonderful pro-life documentary film back in 2009, all about black genocide in 21st century America. And Mark, it's just great to welcome you back to the show. Thanks for being here. Well, Janet, it is my pleasure. It's been a while since I've heard from you. Well, it's always great to have you here. Tell me your opinion on this op-ed. It seems that the pressure is getting to them a little bit, but it didn't go as far as pro-lifers rightly said it should. Well, I think... The overall thing, when I, when I saw it, my overall feeling was too little, too late. Right, right. This, um, you're, you're not going to try to put a happy face all of a sudden on Planned Parenthood's history by distancing yourself from the woman who created it and from the woman who you have lauded all of these years. They have a, a, an award they give out every year for the what they basically is their person of the year award it's been given to people like Hillary Clinton in the past for example right. and it's called the Margaret Sanger award and they have been holding out this woman and and she was a Nazi sympathizer she was a hardcore racist um, she in my view she had the morals of an alley cat or a sewer rat yeah. um, and they've been holding her out as some sort of paragon of virtue and every time, and I've been in this argument with these people for years, every time you would say something about Margaret Sanger or about the history of, of Planned Parenthood or what was originally known as the American Birth Control League, um, they would deny it. And they would say, you're race baiting and you're this and you're that and you're lying. Um, and now it's just a little hard to believe that all of a sudden they've seen the light. I, my suspicion is that because of all the things that have been going on over the last three or four years, and especially since we released my Alpha 21, because of that, they're starting to lose donors. Hmm. And that's the only thing that has ever, ever, in the history of this evil organization, the only thing that has ever motivated them is money. And so if this woman is trying this too little, too late uh, PR campaign now, and that's what it is, um, I just, I can only ima- uh, sur- surmise 
that it's motivated by uh, money and probably loss of loss of donors. You're right because they do care about the bottom line more than anything else. Clearly, or they would have repented of what they've been doing all of these years, years before now. But also the Black Lives Matter movement and the wokeness that this culture is infatuated with that seems to have maybe played a part in this as well. Because didn't Planned Parenthood have something of a scandal about their their people who worked in some of their offices being racist? And th- th- this seems to be getting to the them as well. The race issue seems to be playing at least some of a, a role in this article as well. Well, it's not just that some of the employees were racist. The problem that they had is some of the employees were coming out and saying that the organization is racist. Yeah, right. right. And so, and that's much worse than some individual employees being racist. You could, you could find that anywhere. Yes. But these employees are finally coming forward and saying, we can't cover up for them anymore. Uh-huh. And um, their policies and their practices, their procedures are overtly racist, which we've been saying for years, as you rightly pointed out. Yes, you have. Now, this is part of what Alexis McGill-Johnson said. She said, we will no longer make excuses or apologize for Margaret Sanger's actions, but we can't simply call her racist, scrub her from our history and move on. We must examine how we have perpetuated her harms over the last century as an organization and institution and as individuals. Perpetuated her harms, the whole thing is harmful. The whole abortion industry, obviously, I don't have to tell you this, Mark, but there seems to be something that just won't be discussed with Alexis McGill Johnson and her cohorts, which is we're killing babies. And, and this is based on this legacy of eugenics that we got from Margaret Sanger in the first place. Well, this, this is such a transparent uh, thing that she's doing. She's trying. It, this, is what, this is what's known in corporate America as damage control. Right. And that's what this is all about. And I think we ought to just say to this woman, uh, like I said earlier, uh, too little, too late. We're not taking the bait on this deal. We're not buying it. Yeah. Um, you know, you want to, I'm sure if you were to talk to these people, they would be the first ones to say that, uh, to support, for example, reparations. Yes. For slavery. Okay. And if, if you're thinking that we should be responsible for what our ancestors might have done 150 years ago, what responsibility do you take for the stuff that you've done up to this very moment? Good point. And so if you're now agreeing that with us that, the, that this organization is race-based, it's um, eugenics, it was, it was an f- instrument of the eugenics movement to wipe out minority com- the minority community, um, if you're now admitting that that's true, and, you're, and they're saying we're not going to defend them anymore, so in other words, they need defending, and we're not going to do it. If that's your position, then uh, let's call your board together, and let's sit down and figure out what you estimate just the financial harm that you've done to the minority community is, and let's, let's lay out a payment plan for that. Wow, that's a great idea, and, and rightly so. You know, this movie that you put out several years back, Moffat 21, Black Genocide in 21st Century America, you took a lot of heat for that from the pro-abortion activists, rightly so, because you were exposing what was going on. But what were the biggest takeaways for listeners who are not familiar with some of the statistics regarding abortion in the black community in particular? How bad is it, uh, and how bad is it compared to when you first put the film out? It's, it's no different than, than it was when I first put the film out. It's just that we know about it. That's the only distinction. Right. They haven't stopped doing what they're doing. Um, 
and we were we made the point, and I think we we made the point so solidly that no one has challenged it. <laughs> we connected the dots from the end of slavery until today, and what we showed was that the legalization of abortion um, was simply the latest uh, effort in a long list of failed efforts to accomplish eugenics in America. And this effort has succeeded. And you have now situations where in parts of this country, uh, more black babies are killed in the womb than are born. Mm -hmm. And you have a situation where a white a black woman is almost five times as likely to have an abortion as a white woman is. And you can't tell me that that's not partially due to the fact that abortion clinics have been disproportionately located in black communities. Yes. Now, one of the things that was interesting, uh, and I don't know if we've talked about this on your show before, Janet, but when we first started researching this issue, one of the things we, we found to be very surprising was that if you go back into the 60s, before abortion was legalized, and there was a move afoot to legalize abortion, the people who were fighting against it were not the pro-life groups that, that might exist today. Uh, they didn't even exist at that time. The original pro-life groups in this country were the radical, what we would call at that time, the radical 60s civil rights organization. Uh, wow. uh, the Black Panthers, the Nation of Islam... Um, Elijah Muhammad wrote a book called The Message of the Black Man in America. He had two chapters in there about the reasons why the black community had to be opposed to the legalization of abortion. Hang on, Mark. We're going to pause for a short break. We'll pick up the conversation when we come back. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Stay with us. When this young mom came to a preborn center, she was planning to have an abortion. But after receiving love and support and meeting her baby on ultrasound, she chose life. When I walked in for the ultrasound and I saw my baby and I heard his heartbeat, my mind changed completely. I couldn't do that to my baby. I decided to keep it. Preborn partners with clinics in cities with the highest abortion rates in the country. Will you help preborn save these precious lives? When a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, she's 80% more likely to choose life. And that's just the beginning of the story. I know that with support and with God by my side, I'll be able to do this, not just for me, but for my baby. For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Did you miss the deadline to sign up for a health care program at the end of 2020? If so, I have good news. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th, meaning that if you're looking to enroll in a new healthcare program for 2021, you can do so without the need for a qualifying event. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their healthcare needs. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that offers affordable healthcare sharing programs starting as low as $199 per month. Liberty HealthShare gives you the ability to choose any doctor or hospital across the nation. Memberships are for individuals, couples, and families 
offering a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Well, the CEO of Planned Parenthood is trying to disavow the abortion giant from the founder of Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger, over her views on race. But it's just falling flat with pro-life activists across the country, and rightly so, because it's obvious when you see the history of Planned Parenthood that the eugenics that Margaret Sanger embraced uh, continue to be alive and well in many respects when you look at how they target the black community and other minorities for abortion. Mark Crutcher from Life Dynamics is joining us, and he's also put out a great film, by the way, Mafia 21, Black Genocide in 21st Century America. You were saying before the break, Mark, and I wanted to pick up on this, that before we ever had Roe v. Wade, the movement to get abortion, uh, prevent abortion, actually, from being legalized, you said, were some of these radical 60s civil rights groups. It's absolutely reversed today, of course, but tell us more about that. Yeah, it, these groups, uh, the Black Panthers were, were one of the leaders in this, they recognized, and some of them just overtly said, including Jesse Jackson, by the way, who at that time was uh, championing a human life amendment to the Constitution. And he was saying, he said something along the lines, we've got the quote in the movie, I'm paraphrasing it now, but he said, it's curious that at the minute we decided we were going to demand our civil rights, all of a sudden... um, they started pushing for legalized abortion. Hmm. And, and these, all of these civil rights groups recognized that the motivation behind the legalization of abortion had nothing to do with women's rights or reproductive freedom or any of this nonsense that you hear today as, as sales pitches for legalized abortion. They saw it for what it was, that it was going to be an instrument used to wipe out the black community. <sighs> And we had presidents of the United States, even Lyndon Johnson, and, and uh, it was Republicans and Democrats alike that were pushing this scheme. You know, Lyndon Johnson said, we can make, uh, for every um, $5 we spend on contraception in a minority community, that's better than spending $100 in economic development. They, these 60s, what we would classify at that time as radical um, civil rights leaders, and some would still classify that um, that way, they recognized exactly what was going on. Sure. And, you know, if you go back and you study these people, and we did, and we have a lot of their quotes uh, in the movie, um, they, they knew exactly what was happening. They, they were not being fooled. And it was white liberals <laughs> that they saw clearly were the people pushing for this, and it still is. It still is, but why the reversal? Because this would fit right in with the current uh, push to have racial equity and equality and all the other things that people are pushing for and talking about race all the time. Why isn't this fitting into the same scheme? My goodness, if you're going to talk about Black Lives Matter and you have to talk about abortion, when you look at some of these horrendous abortion rates, I think I read last year, 247, I believe it was, black babies are killed every single day by abortion. It's, it's heinous. It's absolutely out, outrageous that the country would put up with this. Well, if you want to uh, 
put it in modern terms, one of their one of the big issues, supposedly, from these people like Black Lives Matter and Antifa and, and all these radical, hardcore, um, what I call commiecrats in, in Congress, yeah. is voter suppression. They're all worried about voter suppression, right? Yes. Or so they claim. Yeah, right. Um, the fact is, nothing has been a bigger instrument of voter suppression than the legalization of abortion and the targeting of the black community with abortion clinics. True. Nothing True. has lowered the political power of the black community like that. But what you have to understand is that in any organization or any entity, what the leaders want and what the followers are, are, are after are not always the same thing. And, you know, for example, we've, you hear all this stuff about, uh, from Black Lives Matter about their concern about poverty and uh, white privilege and all this, and yet the leader of Black Lives Matter is out here buying million-dollar houses with money that was given to Black Lives Matter. That's right. So, I mean, I don't live in a million-dollar house. I don't know about you, but no. <laughs> I, I, I certainly don't live in one. No. And I certainly don't live in a house that was paid for um, with money that was given uh, to some nonprofit organization or, or an organization like Black Lives Matter. Yeah. It's outrageous, but a good example of this, I mentioned... Um, uh, Jesse Jackson a minute ago, he was adamantly pro-life, and he understood. He made a lot of different statements, in, beyond even the one that I gave you a moment ago, about how abortion was going to be legalized, and they were going to push birth control and abortion in the black community in order to get rid of them. But the problem was that he eventually decided he wanted to be president of the United States. I remember. And he was going to run as a Democrat. Mm-hmm. Uh, because most blacks were voting Democrat. And so, literally, there was a point at which Jesse Jackson was calling for a constitutional amendment to stop abortion uh, because it was going to be used as an instrument of black genocide. And then a week later, he's calling a woman's right to choose abortion the greatest civil rights cause of our time. Despicable. The, he, sell, he sold out for money. And every everybody in the black community, whether they want to admit it or not, knows that that's what Jesse Jackson did. Sure. And he took millions of people along with him and concealed this. You're not going to tell me that if you look at the, the Democrat Party today and what their position on abortion is, you're not going to tell me, because I know better than to think that the rank-and-file black people in this, in this country have morals so bad that they support that. It's just not true. Yeah. Well, it's it, just a lie. Yeah, and as you said before, we've seen these abortion super centers being set up in a lot of these urban areas, and that's on purpose in order to target minority communities. Right. And it's so racist, and it's so horrible. And I think for a lot of pro-lifers, they say, why can't we get more of a pro-life ideology going in the black community. Certainly there's some heroes in the pro-life community who are black, but how do we increase that? I remember a few years ago when they tried to, I think it was put up some billboards about black abortion rates in New York City. Uh, There was some real pushback against that, but that's exactly what needs to happen. Get the message out to the black community, these people who are voting for these pro-abortion politicians to say, hey, listen, you need to see what's actually being done to your own communities by abortion clinics and abortion providers like Planned Parenthood wake up to this? Well, we have, that's a message we have to get out to the black community. And 
the, th- the first thing that has to happen for, a ch- for the pro-life movement, and I've been saying this for years, and, I, and, and it's, it's frustrating sometimes that it, it falls on deaf ears. Yeah. The fact is, now, Janet, you, know, you and I have known each other for many, many years, and I've been at this full-time for over 35 years. Yes, you have. And I can tell you I have a lot of experience at this, and I can tell you right now, and, I, and there's absolutely no doubt that what I'm going to tell you is true. The key to ending abortion in America lies in the black community. If you, if you look out here and you think that, that, the, that the base of the pro-life movement is white, evangelical, conservative, Christian, Catholic uh, people, we've probably got all of those we're going to get. You're right, yep. But if you say we can make inroads in the black community, if we... Remember this, most elections in this country are won by very small margins, Mm -hmm. tiny margins. Mm -hmm. So the ability to win an election is based on on your ability to move small numbers of people from one side to the other. We don't have to go in and win over every black person in America because that's not going to happen. We don't even have to win the majority. All we have to win is a relatively small number of them by showing them what abortion and Planned Parenthood and and the abortion lobby in general have done to their communities and continuing to do to them. If we can deliver that message and win just a small percentage of them over, not to the Republican side, I don't care about the Republican Party, the the Republican Party has stabbed the pro-life movement in the back more often than the Democrats have stabbed us in the chest. (laughs) Yes. So this is not about making people Republicans. It's about making them pro-life voters. Right. If we make even a small percentage of black America pro-life voters, the abortion industry collapses overnight. That would be great, because I was looking at some of these CDC numbers from its most recent report saying that 38% of non-Hispanic black women, that that's the percentage that have abortions, uh, that the percentage of abortions that are given, 38% of them are for non-Hispanic black women. Do you have a number, Mark, in what percentage of the black community we would additionally need to be pro-life in order to do what you're talking about? Um, I mean, I haven't run the numbers on it, but it's obviously a very small very small percentage. Yeah. When you look at elections, and, uh, which is common for, um, let's say, Republicans to get eight or nine, seven or eight, nine percent of the black vote, and, and Democrats to get over 90 percent of it, but then the election is only won by two or three percent, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that means if you're taking that, that 90 percent group and you're just bleeding off 10 or 15 percent of them, then the other side can't possibly win. Right. You're right. Yeah. And we we need to be focusing on this and delivering the truth to them. But it's been very frustrating in my, in my failure to get the pro-life movement to recognize this reality. And a lot of times in the pro-life movement, we are method-driven rather than results-oriented. Mm. Yes. We'd rather do it the way we'd rather do it and lose than change strategies and change tactics 
and win. See, I'd rather win. I'm with you, Mark. I think we, we all should have our eye on the prize in winning this because there are millions of lives at stake. The stakes really couldn't be higher. And I just want to recommend MAFA 21 to people because I, I've watched the movie, obviously, and it's just so powerful. And I really salute you again, Mark, for all the great work that you've done. LifeDynamics.com is the website, by the way. Check it out. Mark Crutcher, so good to talk to you, Mark. And hopefully we'll talk again very, very soon. Thank you so much. Call me again, Janet. You bet. I sure will. Appreciate you very much, Mark. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This Janet Meffer Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Back in 1983, Joe Biden referred to packing the Supreme Court as a bonehead idea and a terrible, terrible mistake that would threaten the independence of what he called the most significant body in the country. And yet now, as we know, Democrats have introduced the Judiciary Act of 2021, which proposes to increase the number of justices from nine to 13, but is really just a way for the left to politicize the high court and entrench its ideological power. Now, interestingly enough, Biden and Pelosi, the House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, have pushed back against this idea. Pelosi said she wouldn't bring the proposal to the floor. Biden's Biden's administration announced that he is going to wait on taking a position until this newly formed commission on the issue puts out its report on court reforms. But a lot of Americans just don't know much about the history or the constitutional issues that surround the dangers of court packing. And that's why First Liberty Institute has launched a new campaign to educate citizens about it. SupremeCoup.com is the website. We're going to find out more about it now from attorney Jeremy Dice, special counsel for litigation and communications at First Liberty Institute. Jeremy, welcome. It's great to talk to you again. Oh, good to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. What do you make of this Democrat proposal to expand the Supreme Court and the supposed good cop, bad cop dynamic? It seems to be uh, emerging here among Democrats where Biden and Pelosi are on one side and kind of playing it like good cops, but the other Democrats are the bad cops. What's going on here, do you think? Well, in the end, I think what's going on is a a significant threat to the independence of our judiciary that puts at stake the the uh, the last safeguard to our civil rights that we have in this country, which is our court system. Uh, And so the uh, the left is now trying to play these political games with the the court bitter that uh, they had some um, some good justices appointed during the Trump administration and more judges below that and the other circuits and and district courts around, around the country. And now they're trying to pay back the country in a way that uh, really puts our entire constitutional order in our system completely in jeopardy here. So my hope is that the legislative proposal goes nowhere. My fear is that this commission will give it uh, cover to do something even worse. Yeah, that's my fear as well. Can you speak to the constitutional issues here, Jeremy? Because people will know, for example, what happened during the FDR years where they wanted to pack the court and Congress wouldn't go along with it. But we've had varying numbers of justices on the Supreme Court over the last couple hundred years. Uh, What are the constitutional issues that are important here? Yeah, well, number one is the fact that we have a constitution, and that ought to be enough right now. And we ought to follow that constitution and recognize that when a a justice passes away or retires, uh, 
Uh, it, it is not the definition of court packing. That is actually the constitutional requirement to fill that seat, and that's exactly what President Trump did. And now the left has branded that as an effort to court pack. Now, now they're trying to say, no, we need now 13 judges or justices rather on the Supreme Court of the United States, and who knows how many below that just to even the score. That, that's not how this works. Right. We, we have appointments that are filled and vacancies that are filled by appointments, uh, and that's how the system works. And more than that, any of these suggestions that are made have to be in line with the Constitution. And, and frankly, the people that are going to decide that are the nine justices on the Supreme Court of the United States right now is currently situated. So I'm hopeful that they're remembering uh, their lessons from con law classes that they've both been through and taught. Right. That uh, they are the ones, as Marbury versus Madison told us back in the 1800s, early 1800s, they're the ones that say what the law is, uh, and not the president or the Congress. Well, no, and and this goes really strongly against the principle of judicial independence. It's very important and was important to the founders that we have a an independent judiciary. Can you explain to people why that's so significant, that if you take that away, you really are destroying the judiciary? Yeah, and I, I think it's best exemplified by this uh, this Orwellian presidential commission on the Supreme Court. I mean, it's it, one of the lessons that they've been asked to, to, or one of the issues they've been asked to review is whether or not they should strip some jurisdiction from the Supreme Court of the United States. And one of those areas is whether or not they have the ability to review certain acts of Congress. I had to read that twice when I read that. Am I really hearing them say that they want to remove the ability for Congress to invalidate uh, acts of Congress, mm-hmm. that's precisely what the Supreme Court has put in place to do. That is one of the core checks and balances of our system. The president can propose ideas and execute the laws. The legislature are the, are the ones who, who propose the legislation and pass the laws. And it is the Supreme Court that ensures that those laws are consistent with the Constitution. Here's why this matters. If the Supreme Court is just turned into another political or legislative branch of our government, well, then there is no independence left in our government. He who holds the Congress and holds the White House then holds the entire reins of government. And so it becomes a rubber stamp effort uh, within the Washington, D.C. swamp for whatever policy agenda they want to go through. Right now, that would be Joe Biden and uh, his Congress, uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, Chuck Schumer in the Senate. But maybe in the future it's something better or worse. But let's not fool ourselves into thinking that this is exactly what the Congress wanted, or I'm sorry, what the founders wanted in the first place. They wanted a judiciary that was independent. They could come in and say, that's right, that's wrong, that's constitutional, that's not, and not someone that could be influenced by the political system. That was tried in 1937 with FDR. I think it's being tried again here. Yeah, it is. Now, what about the potential effects on our rights and our freedoms, including our religious liberty, if they are actually able to get 13 Supreme Court justices in power? I mean, aside from all these other considerations, how does that affect our religious freedom, do you think? Well, it'll it'll make it more difficult because let's just uh, be honest, the, the people that are going to be appointed or the people that are appointing them, rather, are going to be the ones that are currently in charge and are embittered in the la- from the last couple of years of the Trump presidency. Uh, and, and so it's going to shift the balance of power from where it is right now in the Supreme Court, which is roughly five or six to five, four, six to three, uh, with conservative justices being in the majority. But the left en- envisions a day in which they would be back in line. They, they, they view the fact that Justice Ginsburg uh, passed away too soon so that uh, t- President Biden couldn't replace her, her, uh, uh, her seat. And, and the fact, the same thing with Scalia, that uh, Mitch McConnell kept that seat open. They view all that 
as some sort of conspiracy of court packing. And now they're trying to take political payback here and say that we should um, pack the court. Now, just think about this for a second. What if President Trump had won? <laughs> what would the result have been? Like, and he wanted to pack the court with 13 justices. What do you think Chuck Schumer would say about that? What do you, what do you think that Nancy Pelosi would think about that? Yeah. We already know what President Biden thought of it. He thought it was a bonehead idea in 1937, and, and I, I would hope he would think the same thing still today. Yeah. But that remains to be seen. Well, here's a question, and I know this doesn't really have a definitive answer, but what is it they want to do that would necessitate packing the Supreme Court? It's a very extreme move and really shows how really totalitarian they are becoming, at least looking at it. How, how are we to think about that? Because that has to be the question. What do you guys want to do that our current system would not allow you to do under our Constitution? Yeah, well, I, I, the only answer I could come up with that is that Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, or President Biden for that matter, don't like to be told that they're wrong. Uh, and if you object to their pieces of legislation, if you think that they are overreaching on a variety of fronts, and I can think of just a few right now, H.R. 1, the Equality Act, yep. and more that are coming down the line, the PRO Act and others, that are going to be enforcing uh, uh, far less progressive policies upon the country and if you have justices like Kavanaugh and Barrett and Gorsuch and Thomas and Alito, they're going to come on and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. we got to look at this thing called the Constitution and make sure that these laws agree with the Constitution. Uh, well, they're going to be told no a lot with, in this scenario. But if they don't have those justices to worry about, and they just have a majority of justices that think the Supreme Court, that the Constitution is a living and breathing document, that we can find new rights inside of the numbers of the Constitution and Frankly, we don't even really have to look at that old, ancient, decaying document anymore. Uh, well, then they can get whatever done they want to get done through policy proposals. They don't have any threat to their legislation. And so we become really not a constitutional Republican democracy. We really become an oligarchy ruled by our elected officials in Washington who allow, a, allow us to vote for them to keep them in power long enough to be able to do what they want to do. That, that ought not be the case. We, we don't need a Supreme Court coup. We need to adhere to our Constitution. Well, that's right. We don't want to become a one-party country either. That's the stuff of banana republics. We need to keep that in view. It's really a scary scenario. Who knows if it'll come to pass, as you said, Jeremy, but people can check out supremecoup.com and find out more information. This is very helpful information from First Liberty Institute. Jeremy Dice with us. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for the update. Thank you. All right. You take care. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International, engaging the world with God's Word for more than 80 years. Believers in Africa are hungry to read their very own Bibles. Hear from Pastor Jeremiah in Zimbabwe. The church is growing very fast in the northern part of the country where Tsonga-speaking people and Zulu-speaking people. And, uh, you know, we find that there's a movement of the Holy Spirit there where the hunger or spiritual hunger is very much visible. If you can imagine 10 Christians right now in many places in Africa, on average, nine have no access to the Bible. Here's Lillian in Mozambique. We went to this church just on the outskirts of Maputo. 
uh, the church had about um, about a hundred people, and the the only person actually who had a Bible was the pastor. But everybody else had never seen a Bible, and that gives us motivation to want to go more, to do more, to reach to as many people as we can. You know where God gives us opportunity to go there and just take the word of God. Through Bible studies and resources that introduce people to Jesus Christ, Bible Leak is faithfully discipling new believers in Kenya, Ghana, Ethiopia, and many other African countries. Here's an evangelist named Joseph in South Africa. We were in a place called Mpumalanga. The lady there is about 60, 62 years or so. She literally cried. She knelt down and she cried. She never, at the age of 60, she never had a Bible. It is so much fulfilling just to see people like her rejoicing um, when they receive their Bibles. You can be the answer to a Christian praying for God's Word through Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D. $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Boy, there's so much going on to get to. I want to talk, though, for just a minute about David Daleiden, a pro-life hero, if there ever was one. And he and the great pro-lifer, Sandra Merritt, his cohort, have done tremendous work in exposing the baby body parts trafficking that Planned Parenthood has been engaged in. I don't know where that FBI investigation is right now. It's been several years. I guess they're not going to get around to it because they're too busy going after trespassers uh, at the January 6th upheaval in Washington, D.C. That's the important thing. At any rate, a terrible decision came down just recently from a federal judge. This is U.S. District Judge William Oreck III. You'll recall, by the way, that there had been a $2 million civil verdict in favor of Planned Parenthood against David Daleiden and Sandra Merritt and the Center for Medical Progress and some other collaborators for going to these abortion conferences and exposing on video what is actually going on and getting some of these abortion Uh, advocates to reveal what they're really doing. Well, anyway, according to Courthouse News, this order now echoes a previous decision exactly one year ago that permanently bans David Daleiden and his associates from Planned Parenthood health centers and events and also barred the group from releasing recordings surreptitiously taken at National Abortion Federation meetings. Are you frustrated by injustice? I sure am. It's just been one loss after another, and a lot of it has to do with the rank corruption of the court system and where the venue has been for the suits that have been ongoing with David Daleiden. It's so frustrating. But, you know, I just would ask you to pray for them because they have done such incredible work of investigative journalism showing the country who these people really are. And exposure is the first step in getting things set right again. So please be in prayer for them. Here's something else that really bugs me about this. Wesley J. Smith, the bioethicist, has pointed this out over at National Review. Undercover videos protected for animal rights activists, but not pro-life ones. (laughs) Interesting, isn't it? The double standard. Activists often use undercover video exposés as part of their advocacy campaigns, but it's increasingly apparent that the legality of such activities may not depend on the question of secretly taping, but on the ideology of the activists with the cameras. I think we all know that. For example, an Iowa ag-gag law preventing the infiltration and filming of animal industry facilities was declared 
unconstitutional by a federal court. This was from a few years back. USA Today reported a federal judge ruled that the law was unconstitutional, saying the industry-backed statute violated the First Amendment's free speech protections. Well, that's kind of interesting. And the ACLU of Iowa's legal director said the decision was an important victory for free speech in Iowa. It has effectively silenced advocates and ensured that animal cruelty, unsafe food safety practices, environmental hazards, and inhumane working conditions go unreported for years. But I guess that standard doesn't apply to David Daleiden. Isn't that absolutely amazing? So if you have undercover videos that are constitutionally protected free speech, but they expose the abortion giant of Planned Parenthood that is so much controlling the Democratic Party, then you have to go in the direction of Planned Parenthood regardless of the law. It's so incredibly unjust. And it's so maddening to see this stuff happening. It was kind of interesting. Courthouse News Service ran an email statement that was issued by David Daleiden And he said, what is on the footage of public conversations at abortion industry trade shows that Planned Parenthood leadership is so desperate to cover up? Our expert, Dr. Forrest Smith, the country's longest practicing abortion provider, says it shows the quid pro quo sale of fetal body parts, abuse of patients and infanticide. But Judge Oreck insists he sees nothing wrong with it, yet won't let the public decide for themselves. This decision hides the most incriminating and damning footage under the fig leaf of trade show exhibit agreements, which explicitly permitted exhibitor recording. Did you know that? This transparent attempt to skew the law and suppress free speech to protect the worst wrongdoing must stop and the truth must be revealed. Animals above people. Doesn't this strike you as kind of the spirit of the age? And in that vein, this is really creepy. I'm kind of segueing here into the anti-human movement that has been growing and growing over the last several years. Did you hear about these recent scientific experiments You have scientists mixing human body parts with robots and monkeys. That's so awful. This is over at The Federalist. It's been a big month for sci-fi primates. On April 8th, Elon Musk's startup Neuralink announced they created a cyborg monkey who can play mind pong using a brain chip. And the next week, scientists at the Salk Institute in California revealed they successfully grew human macaque embryos in test tubes. That's a kind of monkey. These hybrid babies were aborted at 20 days. Now, the ethical implications of such experiments are now debated with a resigned shrug. There's a sense of inevitability to it all. Powerful humans will indulge in any behavior that's both pleasurable and possible. And what could be more pleasurable than playing God? I don't know. Go back and watch Jurassic Park. That was a pretty good morality tale for what happens when you try to play God. Even though it was fictitious, it made its point. I don't know if we would accept the message of Jurassic Park with such enthusiasm in today's world. Nevertheless, the monkey cyborgs. Here's a little info on that. Musk's wired-up primate is being celebrated as a major breakthrough in cyborg technology. And the overall system is fairly simple. Neuralink scientists trained a nine-year-old macaque, pager, to play Pong and other puzzles on a computer screen using a joystick. Every time the monkey made a correct move, a metal tube squirted banana smoothie into his mouth. And all the while, Pager's brain was being scanned by two Neuralink chips jabbed into his skull. More than 2,000 wires fanned out into his gray matter, monitoring his motor cortex as he wiggled the joystick and sucked down the banana smoothie. Once the monkey's neural activity had been correlated with his actions on screen, the researchers unplugged the joystick. The cursor kept moving. 
The monkey was playing a video game with nothing but his brainwaves. The author says, it seemed like the cursor moved more smoothly when the Neuralink chip was being employed. According to Musk's declared ambitions, this breakthrough is just a stepping stone to inputting Neuralink chips into human skulls, thereby merging our cognition with artificial intelligence. In the hyper-competitive world looming just over the horizon, when AI has surpassed the human mind, getting a brain chip could be seen by many as merely a way to keep up in the rat race. Ah, Lord, come quickly. Neuralink's monkey is just the latest chapter in a long history of animal-machine hybrids. Now, this is interesting. 20 years ago, Northwestern University revealed the first vertebrate cyborg. In that experiment, scientists cut a lamprey eel's brain out of its head, kept the brain alive in a nutrient solution, hooked wires to its visual and motor cortices, and stuffed the sentient organ into a small machine the size of a hockey puck. And there, the eel's visual cortex was connected to light sensors and its motor cortex controlled the device's wheels. They placed it in a dark space. They flashed lights on one end of the chamber and the other. And because they orient themselves to light through the ocean surface, the brain-controlled hockey puck turned and moved toward the light whenever it shined. And guess what happened then? Publications like CNN and the Washington Post said, Ooh, we're suspicious. We're morally concerned. Today, they chronicle the rise of technocracy with a mixture of awe and shameless product placement, if they cover it at all. Looking at Elon Musk's cyborg macaque, they see a bright future where the lame shall walk, the blind shall see, and the dumb shall think like super intelligent machines. And then you had on April 15th, the team at the Salk Institute announcing the successful fertilization of human macaque chimeras a term derived from Greek mythology. In Homer's Iliad, the chimera had a lion's head, a serpent's tail, and a goat's body, and it breathed fire. How does this all work? Well, they engineered pig hosts that grow healthy human lungs. They take a fertilized embryo, then add the stem cells of another organism like a human being, and then they let the resulting entity gestate in vitro or preferably in utero, then stand back and watch the magic happen. There's no fear of God in any of this. There's no fear of God in any of this. And he says, today your kid needs braces to feel good about her smile and tomorrow she'll need a Neuralink chip to keep up in school. And given the laws of supply and demand, the price of fresh fetal tissue could be the crypto bubble of tomorrow. Indeed, that trend appears to be well underway. And again, the question for regular people isn't how to stop this technocratic revolution from taking place. Barring some circuit-frying electromagnetic pulse, that ship's already sailed. The question is how to stay human in this emerging world. At what point are you just being stubborn? And on the other hand, at what point have you sold your soul? Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Isn't that what Jurassic Park taught everybody? Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. In order to have a should that means anything, though, you have to have a true north. And our true north is the word of God. The word of God. He is the creator. He is the one we worship. We do not worship the creature. We do not regard ourselves as little gods. We understand we're sinners saved by grace through the incredible sacrifice that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, made on the cross for us, shedding his blood to pay the debt for my sin and for yours and rising again from the dead on the third day to justify us before the Father. What a miracle that is. Let's worship him in spirit and in truth and tell the world the truth about Jesus Christ and about God's sovereignty and preeminence over his creation. He's God. We're just sinners. Thanks for being with us on Janet Meffer today, and we'll see you next time.
This hour of Janet Mefford today has been brought to you by Bible League International. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD.